Hi, and welcome to episode 26 of the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sobolski. In this episode, we continue a conversation we started with three of our guests from episode 25, Dr. Stephen B. Haas, Dr. Antonia Chen, and Dr. Torsten Seiler. I'm joined by my co-host, Reed McClellan, as we discuss the impact of COVID-19. But first, a brief message from our sponsor. We know you hate typing. We know you've had bad experiences with speech-to-text software. You may have even tried sending voice recordings overseas for transcription. Maybe you were so desperate to solve your medical documentation problem, you paid $35,000 for a Google Glass system. There are so many ways to get your medical notes completed, but what are the pluses and minuses of each solution? Which solutions provide a real return on your investment? Read Suki's complete guide to choosing a medical documentation solution. Go to get.suki.ai. That's get.suki.ai to download. And now, episode 26 of the Voice of Healthcare podcast. It's hard not to think about this tech and how you're applying it in your own services and not discuss the giant pink hairy gorilla in front of us today. Uh, COVID-19 has epicenters in Boston, in New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, New Orleans, others. We're seeing, dupl- we're seeing doubling of infection rates every three days. We're behind on testing. So before I ask any other specific question, what I'm curious about from each of you, what's your take on this? What are some analogs to your own services here? What are you hearing? What do you want to share with each other uh, and to the public listening? I might chime in uh... Just because we are ground zero here in New York uh, for COVID. Not that I know uh, more about this than uh, than actually probably some of the smarter people on this line know more. But I, I will say I think the um, the thing that I would say to people because I think that New York is is the sort of the tip of the sword here because we are uh, for obvious reasons New York international city very densely populated, you know, one ride on the subway and you probably exposed, you know, hundreds of people, if not more. So I would say that, you know, watch the example of what's going on in New York. Uh, and if I were in smaller towns, like if I'm down in, in, in uh, North Carolina, I think the idea is you have some insight into, um, you know, social isolation that, that has potentially, I think, the uh, the idea to do much more in, in prevention than probably we are going to accomplish here in New York. I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I think that uh, this will all work out in the end. But uh, on the flip side is I think that, uh, you know, we're going to, you're going to learn a lot of lessons from the states that are, you know, earlier affected by it. And I think that the states and regions that are less affected can learn from that and, and should uh, be watching very closely. I like to say it's a loaded question that you, you asked there. There's so much to unpack when it comes to COVID-19. I think the most important thing to unpack is how unprepared I think we all were for this and what we could have learned from our colleagues in other countries um, before it made its way over here. That said, though, I think as a healthcare system, and I can only speak to the Boston area because this is what I know, um, but I show, I've obviously seen this in all different cities, including you know, Seattle, San Francisco, 
New York is that people all come together. And especially in healthcare and the front line, you learn very quickly where the resources need to be concentrated. You learn very quickly which healthcare providers are the most important to be in the front line. And you also learn quickly to work as a team. And sometimes they say those team factors are actually standing back, practicing social distancing, and providing all the protective equipment that you can to the front line. So for example, before it became announced that we should cancel elective surgeries by the general, the Surgeon General, we decided to cancel elective surgeries in advance because we knew that if we used masks on a daily basis or we used them for every case, that we would run out of masks. And our personal protective equipment has run severely low. Now, again, based on the goodness of other people and the people around us, people have been donating masks and face shields and everything from all different walks of life, and that's been very encouraging. From an orthopedic perspective, we noticed a few things that we can do is, one, provide backup. For example, our we have a big uh, physician assistant group that can provide care in multiple different areas. As Dr. Haas said earlier, as orthopedic surgeons, we're probably not the most useful in the front line, but we can do things like take blood pressure and swap patients and, and be there if we need to, to help our colleagues who are truly in the front line of taking care of COVID-19 patients. We also do our parts by really limiting the types of surgeries we do. So we do fracture cases that are urgent, infection cases, dislocation cases, some tumor cases, and some spine cases where they can't wait for a month or two. We do our outpatient visits. We don't want to neglect our patients. So we make sure that we're there for them and we talk to them by phone or by video. And that has definitely enhanced our practices and probably will continue to enhance our practices after this virus is over. I don't think the peak is fully there yet. I think we're still getting to peak season, but I think it will tamper down as we do practice social distancing. Um, one thing that's been of interest for me is studying infection. And so we looked at a marker of infection in the musculoskeletal realm, and we're going to see if this actually applies to COVID-19 patients and see if we can use it for diagnostic and prognostic purposes. Now, our diagnostic tests are getting faster and faster, which is fantastic to see. But initially, our tests were taking at least five days to come back. So we're hoping this blood test that we're looking into right now could potentially be a marker for infection to use an adjunct with other markers, of course. But we're hoping that we can contribute to the front lines of it through research means. Um, I know that other orthopedic colleagues who do orthopedic research, for example, with materials are using things like scaffolding or polymers or radiation to actually allow the reusal of masks or developing filters. So while orthopedics is a far cry from the front lines of COVID-19, we've actually been able to participate in ways that we didn't think were initially allowable. I, I totally agree with what Antonia and, and Steve said. I think in my personal experience, the most shocking part is if you would have asked me months ago if I could ever imagine that we would be in a situation where we run low on PPE, the personal protective equipment, I would have said there is no way. Uh, being in that situation now where I am eight miles away from University of North Carolina Medical Center and about 20 miles away from another level one center, and they already have ads in the, the news at 10 o'clock that they need masks, that they need gloves to take care of these patients. I think that just points out the, the limitations of the system. And I think to me as an orthopedic surgeon, that is scary. Um, I think what I learned 
through this is when colleagues turned to me and said, hey, you're doing this this remote monitoring, the, the televisits, that remote clinic. Is that something that we can apply in this? If you look at this, if you look at the numbers, so I can give you the numbers from yesterday. I haven't looked up the numbers for the, today. Uh, yesterday in the state of North Carolina, we had 279 patients diagnosed with COVID-19. Within the Duke Health System, we ran about 1,600 tests. We got 800 tests back. We have 69 positive patients, but only one inpatient. So if you look at this, we're monitoring 68 patients from home. And how are we doing this at this point? Well, it's very simple. Phone calls and televisits to check in with them every day because you want to keep them isolated. You don't want to bring them in. And this is where technology actually is really helpful. And I think orthopedics, even though we think we're not far advanced in that field, we have a lot to offer since most of these technologies are born out of necessity. And, uh, and I think we're doing a pretty good job by applying this across specialties. And I'm totally, totally agreeing with Stephen. As I, if you ask me to treat a pneumonia, that's probably not the best thing to do. If you ask me to intubate a patient, ooh, probably also not the best thing to do. But I may be able to help you by following up on a patient remotely, call him, do televisit, and see and check in with that patient, calm down that patient. Um, and there's some exciting technologies. You can do remote monitoring of temperature, which is in COVID-19 very important. So I think we do have a role, even though it may be not in the front line, to help during that pandemic at this point. Um, but the, for me as a surgeon, the, the, the most surprising thing was to see how quickly we can run out of uh, essential resources such as PPE. Just to give you the magnitude of how many they, they go through at, at um, I was uh, sent some of the numbers. Um, in a day, they're going through 40,000 N95 masks a day. They usually go through 4,000. They were going through 40,000. 40, and then they, that's in the, in, the whole, in, the, in the Newark Hospital Presbyterian Network. 40,000, they anticipate they'll probably need 70,000 a day. So we're lulled into prior pandemics in the sense that they all were slow moving, they tended to be regional, they were stopped and, and didn't really affect our lives in a big way. They sort of rolled slowly and, and even if the deaths occurred, they occurred over a period of time because I think there was nothing that is this contagious and spread this quickly. You know, if you think about it, you know, like four months ago, you know, a couple of people had it in a town in China and now it's all over the world. It's actually quite amazing. It's always hard for everybody to really prepare the way that they should uh, with, because they don't think it's going to happen. Now, you might can argue they should have thought it happened, but, but people got lulled into it from the prior uh, experience. And the hope is that while this is not a, a good virus, for sure, uh, the fact is that there'll be worse ones. And so if we are better prepared for the worst ones, uh, the other thing is that we think of technology, um, I, I, you know, in the sense that we get lulled into saying, well, medicine is going to solve, like we'll get a vaccine in a month and fix this, right? That's, you know, that's what you're, you're, you figure, why can't we do that? And you realize that these things do take time and, and uh, the complexity of it all. But 
Having said that, I think technology will help us. I think if we have more rapid tests that can test people literally like pregnancy tests, you'll even have the antibody tests and the antigen tests. Um, you know, there's a lot of progress that, you know, because of necessity we're gonna make here. This will not necessarily be the last time we possibly see a pandemic in the, in the future, but I'm thrilled that we'll be so more uh, prepared for it. Thurston, you've been doing telemedicine for a while, actually, versus Stephen <clears throat> shared with us that he did his first telemedicine call uh, uh, yesterday. And what I'd love to hear uh, from you first, Thurston, is why did you first get into telemedicine uh, at all? Because I understand that it doesn't always reimburse at the same level or at all compared to uh, an in-person visit. And then for Stephen and Antonio, why don't you share with us your new experience with this? That's that's a great question. <laughs> the way I got into this is I got volunteered. Um, we assigned champions within the department, and I was volunteered to be the champion or be one of the champions to implement a telemedicine program. And um, it was something that at the beginning I wasn't sure about it and probably Steve and Antonio feel the same way. I was like, ah, I don't, I don't think this is going to work for orthopedics because we rely heavily on x-rays and exams. And I was very skeptical. And um, I had a, what we called an executive clinic on Tuesday night that started at 6 and ran until 8.30 for busy executives that would come in after work. And um, it was well-received among the community and I transitioned that to telemedicine, as I said, I do the follow-up visits 4.30 to 6. And, and I had the same response that I had in person, and now I could do this from home. So I got really excited about this, and it became a, a, a standard. I have patients that, that live out of state that don't want to come in, but they want to check up. They mail in their x-rays. You look at them. You call them. You say, hey, I call you tonight at 6. And you chat for 15 minutes and you're done. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't reimburse as much. But there is something said about convenience. Convenience for the surgeon and uh, convenience for the patient. The patient is happy. You get great reviews. Um, for me, I'm, I'm happy that he can do it from my office at home. Um, so there's some convenience to it. And I'm a big fan. I think it and it's part of my practice. And I could not imagine not having that tool available at this point. And uh, I'm interested to hear what Steve has to say since he did the first two days of visits and then Antonia. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a part of healthcare that's not going to go away. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, and uh, as a new adopter, the, the program actually, we had the program set up to do it. And actually, interestingly, um, uh, Dave Maiman was, was more a lead person on it. And uh, it was supposed to roll out over a year. It was a year that it was all scheduled and there was a year rollout for the whole institution to be doing telemedicine. And um, uh, literally by a, a Herculean task of uh, our IT department and Kate Purnell, our service administrator and a bunch of other people, they got it up and running in a week and a half would say I was probably agnostic a little bit. I didn't really think it was bad. I didn't think it was good. I just wasn't that involved with it. Uh, but having spent the last two days on it and had really, I, I think, very meaningful and um, efficient 
patient experiences. Uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe, I think the patients were happier with the conversation I had with them talking about their need for surgery and the explanations of what we did than, um, than I do in the office. So, uh, you know, the, so I'm, I'm a, a believer for sure. I'm with Torsten that I definitely think this is here to stay. And I'm here with Steven saying that there is definitely a cohort of patients that really appreciate this. One, you're able to spend some face time with an individual that you're either familiar with or is new to you, but you can actually read facial expressions that way. It's much more meaningful than a phone call. And what we normally do is at the end of a long day, we'll call back all of our patients and spend an hour or two talking to them on the phone. And doing so is not only tiring, but it's not a scheduled time with the patient. You might end up with a voicemail and not actually talk to the patient themselves. And it's also not a billed visit. Well, the video conference, you actually schedule in advance. The patient has to be there. You have to be there. And you have a conversation like you would in the office. And to Steve's point, I think you end up spending more time with the patient with more of a face-to-face view. So, for example, if I'm showing a patient an X-ray or an MRI or a CT scan, I'm looking at the screen and scrolling through an image and showing that to them. I'm not making eye contact with them. Well, here, we're both looking at an image in front of our faces and my camera is in front of me too. So I'm front facing my patient at all points in time, which is nice. You know, we all understand that social interaction and engagement is necessary, especially in this day and age. So I definitely see video conferencing as something that's very useful. And I think we will definitely continue it after um, the the virus has passed, for lack of a better term. And to everyone's point, this is not the last pandemic we're having. This is the last, not the last time we'll work from home. But it does help with um, alleviating some of the burden from the actual clinic themselves. You know, so after this, I'm going to really think of my, my clinic and say, you know, how many of these visits do I have to do in person? And some patients need that face-to-face time, and that's okay, and that's a, that's a very important thing. Some patients need injections, and you can't do an injection virtually, and sometimes you need to examine the patient, and especially for surgery, as Steve was saying. So in those contexts, you definitely need to have that physical touch, but not in all contexts. So I also agree with it, too. I think what's really been interesting is, similar to Steve's telemedicine group and IT group, is they could really galvanize it in a short period of time, meaning we had the capability, we just didn't take off with it. So we've made sure that we you know, distribute the cameras for people if they need it, if they're, if they're already capable with their system, they can utilize it, which is helpful. And well, the only time that we've encountered problems really is uh, with regards to internet, either bandwidth from the personal perspective or our uh, electronic medical record system that may not be able to sustain everyone because we are doing our telehealth visits through our EMR, which is pretty nice. We don't record the sessions. We never record our sessions in person anyway, but we do do a note afterwards, just like we would when we were seeing a normal patient. So it's like engaging the patient, but front-facing at all times. You know, sometimes in life and in practice, you have to start before you're ready. This is an example of starting before you're ready. Uh, You know, with some of the commentary you all have made, uh, being able to triage a patient or even follow them at home, for example, either post-surgically or in the case of COVID, if they have a fever, um, you know, after an event like COVID or after uh, post-surgical follow-up, as nice as it is to think about modifying clinic for using uh, telehealth or a video tool such as uh, Zoom or um, Teladoc, for example, uh, what about fatigue? 
what about this concept of us reducing the pajama time? Is it possible that we could be just as fatigued handling our patient loads or our surgical loads using this digital tool as not? Uh, would be curious your feedback on maybe potential challenges as, as much as we're heralding this technology uh, in the current crisis. I can definitely jump in there because we've already experienced some bumps in the road while initiating this telemedicine. Now, we've been doing telemedicine for a year, like Torsten has said, but really haven't taken it off the ground because there hasn't really been a need to. And one, I was saying earlier that our telemedicine platform is within our EHR, and that is a little bit hard and sometimes clunky. Two, the patients that we deal with tend to be older, you know, so 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, one, they may not have the capabilities to do telemedicine, which is a problem in of itself. Two, part of it is there's a time frame at which you sign in, the window's open for you to have your telemedicine visit, and then you end it. Well, if you sign in half an hour early because they're used to going to the doctor's office half an hour early, their session will actually have to time out. So then we've had to call our patients back, get them back on the system again within that time frame, and then both groups. So we've actually had to do multiple phone calls in order to get a patient onto the platform, which then defeats the purpose of just having the patient on the platform and you meet them there. The time windows are also set too. So we have 15-minute time windows, but you can obviously change it to any time window that you want. So if you go over one patient, you may be able to eat, you may eat into the time of another patient, and that may cut the, kick them off. You need to call them back and reschedule it. And for right now, the way that it's scheduled is not through me. So I don't schedule it. My admin has to schedule it. And then I go on the platform at the same time as my patient does. So if they reschedule for any reason, it's actually a much clunkier process as opposed to picking up a phone and just calling when they're available and you're available. So there's a logistic area that probably could be worked through, but it is definitely more work in that aspect than walking into a clinic room, seeing a patient, walking out and writing a note. I mean, I would agree that there there, there are no doubt logistics. We're new. I'll be curious to hear Thurston because he's had this longer experience. But yes, for us, you know, we had to, we I had my office staff call the patient ahead of time. The first one we didn't, and so that half the visit was spent getting the patient, you know, to click the right buttons to do all that. Um, but by the sixth, well, actually by the second, we had set this up, but we did with all the others that we had done a little bit of pre-homework by my staff. But on the other hand, it did require resources to do. I will be, though, like all new technologies, I think that while many of the patients are older, not all of them are, and I think even the older people learn, if this was routine, if they did it with all their doctors and their GP did it, it would be very easy to interface to us. So I, I think as it's more prevalent and people get used to it, just like you know, older folks use their iPhone. Now, they may not do what you do on your iPhone, but they use an iPhone, and they know how to make their call, and they know how to, to send a text to the grandkid, and they uh, uh, learn what they need to do, and I think that will happen here as well. By the way, one, 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 uh, I, I think we need to do this study that says, uh, will, won't knee replacement cure COVID? I, you know, knee replacements for most things. So. I'm in. Sign so me up. That's the one we really need to do. <laughs> we know it's a great operation, so it must fix that as well. Cured by metal, every orthopedic dreams. Love it. I want to jump in and, and, and talk about some of the stuff that Antonia said. Um, I experienced that when we talk about fatigue, talk about frustration. When you, when you start with 
telemedicine and telehealth, you are definitely frustrated, as you should be with any technology that you introduce into your area of field, you're going to have a learning curve. You have a learning curve without doubt with telemedicine as well. And so is the patient. The first visit is going to be painful. They don't know what to do. They sit there. They get nervous. But once you get through that first visit, the second visit, or the third one, it's, they really enjoy it. And you, the, the 10, 15 minutes that you have with them are really focused on their problem, and you talk about it, and it's so much better. So I, I have only positive experience with it, but I had a frustration at the beginning. Very similar to Antonia, you got to call this patient, walk him through to get online, get in a waiting room so you can in, initiate the video. You have frustration with the software. It's clunky. It's not perfect at this point. So it, it definitely has some drawbacks, especially when you get started with a program like this. Um, another factor that I want to talk about is, is reimbursement, right? Uh, telemedicine is not reimbursed at the same rate as in-person visits. And if you look at this, at this point, even though CMS has loosened the regulations around it, now I can see new as well as established patients in the state of North Carolina. If I go outside the state of North Carolina, I can only see established patients. I cannot see a new patient. That at this point is not possible, will not be reimbursed, but patients that came that maybe had surgery that then moved out of state or live out of state, I can follow up and get reimbursed for that. So there are still hurdles for us in terms of implementing this and getting paid for these services. Before COVID-19 really came into effect, only 10 states in the entire United States reimbursed at the same level as an in-person visit. I do think that um, with the CMS now expanding coverage to all Medicare patients, we will start to see new regulations come forward. And I'm hopeful that we will get similar reimbursements because you as a physician are still doing the same level of care, whether you're in person or not in person. What are y'all's thoughts? Do you think telemedicine is here to stay? So I think it's here to stay. Um, I can tell you maybe 5% of my practice was telemedicine before. Coming or once we're through this pandemic, I think that that rate or that proportion will have grown to 15 to 20 because the feedback that I've gotten already is like, hey, this is not bad. This is actually nice. Because if you look at this, if you go to a doctor's office, you spend an hour to an hour and a half in that office. With a televisit, uh, you literally log in five minutes before you wait in the virtual waiting room. You come in 15 minutes and you're done. That's a 20-minute affair. It, it is so much more convenient for the patient, too, versus you come, sit in a waiting room that's crowded, you get brought back, you get all this, and get an X-ray, then you leave. It's an hour and a half out of your day, so that's a big thing. In the convenience part, when we talk about personalized medicine and value-based medicine, this is exactly what telemedicine is. It, it addresses this. You're more efficient, and for the majority of it, you provide the same service that you would get in a face-to-face. -face. Yes, there are situations where you need a face-to-face -face exam or an X-ray, but for the most part, routine follow-up and total joint replacement at two years out, you really don't need that.
And I would echo what Torsten's saying as well, too, in that it is definitely here to stay. To be perfectly fair, actually, orthopedics is late to the game if we compare to other parts of medicine. Dermatology has been doing this for years now because if you want to look at a lesion, you just need to see it. So we have not, we're not the first ones to it, but in surgical subspecialties, we have the unique ability to use video imaging, video conferencing so that we can show imaging. And we can also look at things like range of motion, which we care about after a hip and knee replacement and other parts of the body as well, too. We like to also look at the wound. So those are things that we want to pay attention to that is accessible by video conferencing. And again, similar to what Torsten is saying, if someone's two years out or five years out, from a joint replacement and otherwise asymptomatic, then it would be great for them to get a local x-ray. And then once they have a local x-ray, they send it to us. We look at it, we see them virtually, and they don't have to drive in from far away, have to park, take time out of their workday, or get a significant other or a family member to bring them in. So uh, cost to society decreases, cost to the patient decreases. I think overall, there are certain patients that this will be very useful for. There are some patients who still want to come in on a yearly basis see their doctor just to make sure everything's okay. And in those cases, we won't do telemedicine in those people. But I think telemedicine is definitely here to stay in the realm of orthopedics and will increase with time. The rules and the government regulations and all that, I think that the, the an outcome of what, what's going on now will, I think, persist. I mean, a great example, you know, we I live in a tri-state area where, you know, New York and Connecticut, New Jersey are where many of our patients, even Pennsylvania. And uh, the regulations in, in where... Uh, matter of fact, interestingly enough, I could not book the new patients for today from Connecticut or New Jersey because the that was not allowed. And the exemption was just granted literally today that we can now see patients across board lines. We were the, the hospital allowed us to see the post-ops, but the regulations were not opened enough to let us see. Now in New Jersey, we fill out a form and that's giving us temporary privileges. And they really need to make it cross uh, state line. It's same in Massachusetts. You have many people from New Hampshire and Vermont and, and all, not to mention the ones that, that uh, are in, across the country. So you need to have that regulatory framework around and you need the insurance framework uh, to facilitate. And I think uh, if that comes as I think it will, um, this is here to stay. I always like to offer our guests, you know, a one last sort of comment on the show, on their thoughts. I encourage everyone who uses technology to te develop technology for the sake of improving our patients. And I think most of the technology we're utilizing today is doing so. It's making our lives easier, making our patients' lives easier. But I think that in the midst of all this technology development, we have to remember to put the patient first. And as we do so, things will come naturally and things will become useful and they will stick. So I look forward to using these other technologies as an orthopedic surgeon and knowing that I think we've all contributed to technologies that have benefited patients and hopefully will continue to benefit patients. I, I think, and I'm very much in, in line with what Antonia says, it, it has to be patient first. You, you should embrace technology and change but at the same time, be cautious about how you proceed in implementing that change into your practice. Sometimes we, we implement it too fast. And um, policy, healthcare policy and administration is not ready for that change. And then secondly, I think 
some of these technologies that get pushed out are not quite ready for prime time yet. And I wish companies that release technologies would really talk to more than just the surgeon as a stakeholder. Um, the feedback that I've gotten from technology from patients is that they are usually not involved in any uh, technologies that are pushed out. And I think we could make so much more progress if we involve patients in the development of these technologies as well. You know, it, it is an exciting time uh, for us. And, and uh, interestingly enough, we we always think that, uh, you know, that it was, well, especially in joint placement, you say, well, the exciting times were behind us when we, when they first developed uh, early joint replacement, that must have been really exciting time. And and as probably the senior person here, it uh, back when when John Insels and and uh, the uh, Ewalls and the Ron Watts and all the were starting joint replacement uh, many years ago. And Charlie was, was had to be a magical time in joint replacement. We really want to individualize care. We want to connect with patients. Uh, with technology that helps us connect. I mean, the, the, the telemedicine is a great example of that, but there are others that allow us to really try to focus on how to make the patient happy, how to connect with the patient. And I, I think we always have to keep that in mind, as Thurston said, that should be the focus of our, our advancement technology. And I think uh, it, in that way, um, it, it is an exciting time and, and will be for the foreseeable future. This is your host, Matt Sabolsky, signing off. Until next time.